0: Well, good morning and welcome to Rested Bible Church again. We're so glad to have you with us. I want to uh, give a special welcome to those that are joining us online. Uh, We're so grateful to have everyone with us today. We are in a series called Portraits of Christ. This is week three. Uh, We understand that a portrait is kind of a picture of, of someone, right? And so we are going through a series, six weeks of different portraits, different pictures of who Jesus is. The first week, we talked about Jesus as the bread of life. Second week, last week, we talked about Jesus as the good shepherd. And today we are going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 11. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Uh, And we are going to jump into understanding what it is when Jesus says that I am gentle and lowly. So our focus is Jesus Gentle and lowly. Again, a lot of pictures of Jesus throughout the scriptures. We're going to talk about later on Jesus as judge. You know, we have the the Jesus of revelation that's coming back. But today, we are focusing on Jesus, the gentle and lowly. We're going to read today uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. And here it is. It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this portrait of yourself. And Father, as we walk through this passage and the implications of what it means to us that you are gentle and lowly, that that's what you say of yourself. God, we pray that you would help us to live differently. That, that means something about how it is that we ought to live. So Father, we give you this time, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, as always, I want to give you a little bit of context about what's happening around this particular passage. So this is Matthew chapter 11. But in Matthew chapter 10, uh, Jesus is kind of ministering And of course, you know that Jesus often brought disruption to the world wherever he went. He he healed people and he did miracles and some people embraced those things. And well, some people did not. And Jesus was frustrated with those who did not. And he talks about different cities. And in, in beginning of 11, it says, if Sodom and Gomorrah had received what you're receiving, they would have repented. But you're not. He kind of curses these different towns for their rejection of Jesus. Chasing after the things of this world. And coming up over and over again empty. That's the message of the scriptures. That we chase after everything but God himself. We reject him to do it our way. And then we come up empty again and again and again. I was looking through one of my news feeds as I do periodically. I, I, I've tried to distance myself a little more from that. Just It's just hard to see every day. And I came across to this little article by, about Jennifer Lopez. Now, most people know who Jennifer Lopez is. One of the most talented women. She can sing. She can dance. She can act. And she's worth approximately, I understand it, $4 million. And if you're cool like she is. You can go by your first initial and a portion of your last name like J. Lu, right? I'm not cool enough. That doesn't work in my, for my name. And this particular article was about how she's dealt with anxiety. And I'm like, what? Like, you have everything. You, you can have anything you want. You know, she ch- changes which, which ha- leading man she's with. You know, she can be with anybody, apparently. And yet it's a dead-end street. All these things. Into the world. The world is troubled and it is resistant. And every day people come up dry. Jesus is there. He says, come to me. Come to me. But the world doesn't. And so often we don't either. And we're going to talk about as believers today. What does it mean to come to Jesus The one who says of himself, he is gentle and lowly. Now, as I started to prepare for this message, and I talked with a couple of different people about the title, Jesus, Gentle and Lowly, out of Matthew chapter 11, I had three or four people say, have you ever read the book called Gentle and Lowly? The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland?" And several, you'll see here, several quotes today, several things that reference back to that book. And I said, no, I haven't heard of it, apparently. And they're like, "What, what kind of pastor are you? You haven't read Gentle and Lowly. And so on, much of the way through the book over the last couple of weeks. And this is one of the things that Dane Ortland says. He says, in the 89 chapters of biblical text that we call the Gospels, this is the only verse in which Jesus makes reference to his own heart. To his own heart. He never refers to himself through the scriptures of having a joyful heart, although he does. A, A generous heart, although he has that. A peaceful heart, although that's true. He characterizes himself in his own personal statement, the only one, of himself as being gentle and lowly. And for over 200 pages, Ortland talks about and extrapolates out what does it mean? What are the implications that Jesus says that he is gentle and lowly? Before we get to that, let's talk about this passage. A few things in these three verses. He says, come to me, all who labor, all who labor. This word references being weary. It means being tired. It means losing heart. It means being discouraged. And all of us face that at different times in our life. You know, more than any other time in my 43 years of walking with Jesus, I have heard more and more people more often say, I just want Jesus to come back. I just want Jesus to come back. I've heard people say, "You know, I want to really want to see my children grow up and see my grandchildren and so forth and so on, and that would be wonderful, but I just want Jesus to come back. Life is stressful, and it's changing radically, dramatically. It seems every day, and it threatens to run us over. It says, "Come to me who all who labor, do you labor? And who are heavy laden. Now, heavy laden means an encumbering load. Most of us probably at some point in time have moved from one residence to another. Depending on your age and uh, income stream, maybe you've moved yourself with a group of friends. Or, you know, maybe you've hired a mover. I've had those times where I've moved with a group of friends. The movers are way better. And you remember getting that couch out down the staircase and the only thing that's buffering the wall from being dinged by the couch is your face pressed up against the wall between those two, the couch and the wall. And you're like, I don't know if I can get this out of here. I, don't, I'm, I thought I was strong, but apparently not. This is the image of moving through life with an encumbering load. Have you experienced that in your journey? Jesus refers to himself as being gentle and lowly. And then he says, my yoke is easy. Now again, for most of us, we come up short when it comes to these agricultural metaphors in the Bible. And even if you're a farmer here today, chances are you don't use a yoke of oxen to plow your field and to take care of things out there. We understand it in imagery. We understand the principle. But understanding what it meant day in and day out. To yoke up these two oxen. And and use them as beasts of burden to accomplish the daily tasks. Jesus says that when you partner with me. Under my yoke. My yoke is easy. My yoke is easy. And if you know anything about yokes, you know anything about this process, none of it is easy. The word for easy is actually translated kind in other places in the Bible. And what Dane Ortland says to us he says, Jesus is using a kind of irony, saying that the yoke laid on his disciples is really a non yoke. For it is a yoke of kindness. When you partner with Jesus under the yoke together in life, he does all the heavy lifting. He's the one that keeps it on track. He said, my burden, my heaviness, well, it isn't heavy at all. It's light. With Jesus, that which is heavy is light with him. And when you do this, you will find rest. You will find rest. One day I'm going to do a sermon on rest and on Sabbath and the Old Testament Sabbath principle. And the translation of that into the New Testament and how Jesus kind of, he is our rest. We should develop principles of rest. We should take time to cyclically rest. That, that's biblical. We aren't under the Sabbath law. Actually, the Sabbath law is very oppressive. Oppressive. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel and walked around town during Sabbath. Oh my goodness. If you go into a hotel on the Sabbath, pressing the button for the elevator is considered work. So they have a Sabbath or Shabbat elevator that stops at every single floor so that you don't have to do the work of pressing the button. This is not rest. This is a burden. And when we come to Jesus, He is our rest. Ortland goes on to say this. He says, The composite picture of Jesus in the New Testament is this the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait. Is the way of the Holy Son of God move towards, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it and yet truly desire it. In the church, through much of modern history, the church has done a really, really great job of bringing people to faith in Jesus By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and then helping them develop a journey in Christ that is filled with fear. That one day I'm going to sin as a believer just enough that the other shoe is going to drop. And that is entirely unbiblical. It's entirely unbiblical. Jesus says of himself that I am gentle and this word gentle it's only used four times in the New Testament and in other places it's translated meek it's translated humble he said I am gentle I am humble I am mild and I am lowly that word is a different word but is a complementary word that also means meekness modesty it means not arrogant or prideful And we see this in a myriad of interactions between Jesus and the common people of the day. Jesus was accessible. He was not cold. He was not distant. Remember the story in Mark chapter one? There was a leper and the leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And here it is, moved with pity Jesus was moved in his spirit. That gentle, lowly Jesus was gripped by this man's suffering. You understand that today, leprosy is entirely curable. But in the day, it was not, it was disfiguring. It was awful. You understand about leper colonies where if you were a leper, it was a terminal life sentence. You were moved to a colony and no one touched anybody. Here's a man who hasn't been touched in who knows how long by another human being. Living in isolation. And it says in Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Why did he do that? He didn't have to. He's healed plenty of times without touching people. He healed from a distance. He's like, yeah, go home. And when you get home, you're going to find that the person that we're talking about right now is going to be healed. So go on your way. He He doesn't need to touch anybody, but he did. Why? Because in his pity, in his gentle and lowly spirit, he reached out to a man who just desperately needed to be touched. Remember the blind man in Mark chapter 8. It says, and then he came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand. Isn't that interesting? Jesus grabbed his hand. He held this man's hand. And he walked him out of the village. And then he did something so strange. He spit in his eyes. What? What is that? Now, you can do some research on that. We're not going to really extrapolate that out today. Scholars have all kinds of things to say about why that might have been. Certainly in the first century, there was this notion uh, that spit had healing characteristics. You and I know that that's probably really not true. But he did it. In a very base, human, gritty sort of way, Jesus touched this man. And he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And we could go through the woman in the well in John 4. We could talk about the woman caught in adultery in John 8. We could talk about this the synagogue ruler's daughter in Mark 5. We could talk about the woman with the issue of bleeding for twelve years. And the gentle, lowly spirit. You remember when that woman touched him? And it says that he felt the he essentially felt the power go out of him, and he turned around and said, Who touched me? And she fell at his feet like, oh my goodness, I'm busted. And she freaked out. She was so terrified. And he just touched her. He just blessed her. You see, throughout most of Jewish history, the unclean, when it touches something else, it makes that unclean. But you understand that Jesus was changing the reality for all human beings. That when Jesus, the clean one, touches the unclean sinner, he does not become unclean. But we become clean. We become clean. Do you remember in Philippians chapter 2? Where it says that Jesus took on the form of a a man. And he did not... regard equality with God that place in heaven that was rightfully his he didn't grasp hold of that but he set all of those privileges aside why so that he could come here he emptied himself he divested himself of his position because the first impulse of Jesus Christ is to move toward broken sinners and not away Because he is gentle and he is lowly. Today I want to talk about four elements. Four things that are implications. What does it mean? What does it matter? If Jesus is gentle and lowly, what difference does that make to you and to me today? Four things that we learn from the scriptures about what it means for Jesus to be gentle and lowly. The first one is this. Is that being gentle and lowly means that Jesus loves saving sinners. That saving sinners brings Jesus joy. It brings him joy. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. It says looking to Jesus. That's us. We should look to him. The founder and perfecter of our faith. Who here it is. For the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross. Despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was nothing more shameful in the first century than crucifixion. And you understand that scholars Almost universally agree that those who were crucified were hanging between heaven and earth totally naked. For the whole world to gaze on and to gawk at and to heap shame on them. And all of that shame, Jesus said. Is nothing to me. So that I could experience the joy. What joy? The joy of reconciling human beings to the living God. That joy. The joy of seeing your eyes awaken. To the truth of the gospel. And embrace it. And enter into a loving relationship with the God of the universe for eternity. That joy. And that he saw from eternity past that you would embrace the gospel if you've done so today. And it brought him joy and it sent him to the cross. Although many of us, myself included, as I said a moment ago, often walk through life. We gave our life to Jesus. We feel this refreshing renewal, this release. And then somehow as we launch forward in this journey in Christ, the enemy helps us to think differently. We recognize that although we're righteous in God's eyes legally, that practically day in and day out, I'm still sometimes a disaster. And Jesus can't, sure, surely can't embrace that day in and day out. He tells us to forgive 70 times 7. But, but I'm, it's like forever in this life it seems. Ortland says for those of us who know God loves us. And yet at times suspect that we have deeply disappointed him. Have you ever felt that way? Jesus endured the cross because it brought him joy to see lost sinners reconciled to living God. God does not live in a constant state of disappointment with you. God loves you. You bring him joy. You bring him joy. You know, I've walked through life, through many seasons of my life, feeling like God is disappointed with me that the choices that I've made and the people that I've hurt and the things that I've sometimes done, that they just are kind of a mounting pile of disappointment. And at what point is God going to say, you know what, I I just can't do this with you anymore. That is false. False. That is absolutely false. Your right standing in Jesus Christ through his blood, you stay in that right standing. Does that mean you don't sin? No, it doesn't mean that. Does that mean you don't need to confess that? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that every single time he's there with an open arm saying, yes, we're good. We're good. Because Jesus, gentle and lowly, It means that saving sinners brings him joy. And you bring him joy today just as much as a follower of Jesus than you did the day you met him and gave your life to him. And don't allow the enemy to lead you to believe otherwise. Number two, Jesus being gentle and lowly not only means that saving sinners brings him joy, it means that Jesus sympathizes with, with our weakness. It is in this gentle lowliness of him, it is, is that part of him that in our weakness he meets us there and he says, I, I get you, I get you. Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable. Here it is. To sympathize with our weaknesses. But one in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence. Because he can relate to our weaknesses. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So that. We can receive grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. You understand that the magnitude of your sin evokes in God a commensurate level of grace and mercy every single time. Every single time, you cannot out sin God's grace. You can't do it. You think that you can, but you cannot. You see, the priests of old, they were sinfully weak. Jesus was sinlessly weak. He got hungry. He was tired. He was tempted. All of these things that Jesus literally experienced in life are the things which draw him to us in our weaknesses. Have you ever had a hard time embracing the grace of God? Embracing the mercy of God. You've said I don't deserve it. Well you're right about that. But in Jesus he grants it. In Jesus he freely gives it. And when you are weak. He says. I get you. You know I think of. The denial of Peter. That th- three times. He denied Jesus And that third time, the rooster crows. And you remember the story? Jesus and Peter lock eyes. The scripture doesn't say a whole lot about that moment. It just says that it happened. What was Jesus experiencing right then? I don't want to speak for him. (laughs) He was about to go to the cross to pay for that deed right then. see, being gentle and lowly for Jesus means that saving sinners brings him joy. Number two, it means that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses every day. Every weakness that you have, every struggle that you face, every pain that you feel, Jesus says, I'm with you. I get it. I walk this earth. Number three, Being gentle and lowly means that Jesus is gentle when we stray. Jesus is gentle when we stray. Hebrews 5.2 says he can deal gently, there it is, with the ignorant and wayward, that's sometimes all of us, since he himself is beset with weakness. He is gentle when we stray. You say, what about the discipline of God? I mean, doesn't the Bible talk about, you know, God disciplines those he loves? Yes, yes. There's a balanced perspective in all of this. For many of us, as we walk through life with Christ, we don't have a hard time uh, embracing or understanding, coming to grips with God's discipline. (laughs) It's the balanced part that we struggle with. And today we're not here to talk about God's discipline. We can do a series on that. Today we are here to talk about God dealing gently with us. Now the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 is a very powerful story. And there are so many discussion points in that. The the brother who's the prodigal. The brother who stayed at home. The father and all these different. We we could do um, a six weeks worth of series on just that one story. But the image that I want you to consider. Is this one see, the prodigal son took his inheritance. He took half of everything that his father had, like half. And he went and he blew it in wild living. And everything you can think about what he might have done is what he did. Whatever that, however awful that was, could be that's what he did. And here comes his son up the road and the father is standing at, The door waiting. And the passage tells us that the father ran to him. Now, you understand, in the first century, men did not run. They have long robes. And in order for him to do that, he had to hike up his robes and take off. A very undignified thing to do in the first century, and he just wouldn't do it. But in that moment, when he saw his son coming toward him, dignity was set aside. His love and his gentleness for he, and he 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 wrapped his arms around him, and he killed the fatted calf, and they had a party, and he didn't say, "Okay, now let's review <laughs> what you've learned from all of your poor choices over this time period." L- let's go down the list, and somehow we feel that when we fail, when we sin. Oh, God's going to forgive us. But, you know, there's that list. Let's review. What did you learn? Romans 5, 20 and 21 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through Righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin rose to a certain level, grace rose to meet it, and then some. And you cannot out sin God's grace. You know, I have two brothers. And you know, as siblings would do, we sometimes fought. We did. My mom At her tallest was 5'2. And as we grew, discipline grew more difficult for her. And so then came the wooden spoon. And the wooden spoon was because she started breaking blood vessels in her hand. Not because we were so abused, but because every time she gave us a swat, it didn't hurt us, it hurt her. The wooden spoon. Sometimes I believe that I live life as if God is standing there with the wooden spoon. I love you. I love you. But don't cross the line. I love you. We're good. Wooden spoon. It's not like that with God. Every time we sin... God's anger isn't evoked. His sadness and grief is evoked. His grace and mercy is available. It is evoked. It is there simply for those who would come to him. Dane Ortland says, He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. You can take a picture of that if you want. Like that needs to go somewhere in your house. He sides with you against your sin. Not against you because of your sin. Fourth and finally, being gentle and lowly means that number one, saving sinners brings joy to Jesus. Number two, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. Number three, Jesus is gentle when we stray. And number four, his gentle and lowly spirit means that he will see us through to the end. He walks with us through to the end. It says in John six thirty seven, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never, never, never cast out. In the Greek, this is a double negative. A double negative to us equals a positive. But in Greek, when you say two negatives in a row, it means it's really negative. It means I can't never cast you out. We are righteous in God's sight, not because we deserve it in Christ. but Because he grants it to us in Christ. He doesn't say, those who come to me, I will never cast out if they try harder. He doesn't say, those who make great progress, I will never cast out. He simply says, those who come to me. It's the coming to me that grants you access to not be cast out not your performance, which is what we often feel. And this is the will of him who sent me, John 6, 39, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's no hidden pockets of sin in your life. That at the end of it all, you're going to stand before Jesus and says, uh, "Yeah, we know we have to this. We we never dealt with that. Oh yes, we did. We did at the cross. I believe that for many of us today, it is very very difficult for us to maintain our grasp. On this critical portrait of Jesus. That he is gentle. He is lowly. Does our sin grieve him? Yes. Does it it evoke his grace? All the more. And as followers of Jesus Christ. You and I. We cannot sin our way out of his grace. Being gentle and lowly means. That saving sinners brings him joy. That Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. That he is gentle when we stray. And that he sees us through to the end. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8. You are on a journey. And the outcome is certain in Jesus Christ. Two things as we wrap up today by way of application. Two things that I want to challenge you with for this week. And some of us us today, I am challenging you to go home and sit, find an easy chair, find a quiet place, and meditate on the truth that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, often need to renew our embrace of the favor of Christ in our new identity in Him. Number one, embrace the favor that you have in Christ. In your new identity in him. Do you believe that when you wake up. God is there every morning saying. Oh I'm so glad you're up. I just want to be with you today. Or that you are a chore to the living God. That you are a burden to him. He can't take one more day of you. And one more failure today. He just can't take it. You have an identity in Jesus. You have his favor, not because you deserve it, but because he's granted to you in Jesus. Can you embrace that? Romans 8.1 says that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you feel condemned today, it's coming from you. It's coming from you. Not him. You see, in that new identity, when I embrace my favor in Christ and I have a new identity, (laughs) life takes a whole different hue. I have a whole new mission. I can live with a whole new freedom. When I embrace the favor of Christ, that he loves me and he likes me too, then, number two, I can, in that new identity, I can boldly, boldly move toward other people. Yes, yes. I have nothing to fear. I have no one to impress. I can take rejection. I can, I can do anything I need to do. My identity is in Jesus. My favor is in him. I don't need you to like me. A couple of weeks ago, I did my 105th wedding. And it was my niece... And her new husband. My niece's name is Maddie Grace. And it was one of the most powerful experiences of my journey. And here's why. Maddie Grace is 22 years old. She just graduated from college. And on the rehearsal, we had the rehearsal and the rehearsal dinner. The unique thing is that we were at a place that they had kind of rented for the night. So we had the rehearsal dinner, but then we didn't have to go anywhere. And so that evening, people just started sharing about the bride and the groom and their journey with them. They had nine attendants on each side because they have so many people in their life they just couldn't pick the top four. And part of it is is because Maddie Grace is a young woman who boldly, she knows who she is in Jesus and she boldly loves other people. And there was a woman in her wedding party who stood up and she said, that they went to Messiah, Univers- Messiah College and this woman stood, young woman stood up and she said, I was really broken and have really struggling one day in chapel and I was crying and I had someone come and put their arm around me. And I looked up and it was Maddie Grace. And I said, hi, who are you? <laughs> it's because knowing people didn't stop Maddie Grace from caring for people. And their wedding party was so big, and their friendship group was so significant and so solid because she just loves people. She just loves people because she knows who she is in Christ. She just moves toward people. She doesn't wait around for someone to say, I just really want a friend. I wish someone would reach out to me. Never. Because when you know who you are in Jesus, <laughs> and you embrace that identity and the favor that he has for you, then you can live with boldness in whatever circumstance you find yourself. Uh, It is my prayer today that the people of Reston Bible Church would so bask in the favor of the living God and embrace an identity in him that we launch out of this place without fear, to do whatever God is calling us to do, to love the unlovable, to lay down our lives for whoever we face, that people might see Jesus in us. And if you are here today, and you are not a follower of Jesus today, I have some bad news and some good news. The bad news is, is that people who don't sit under the blood of Jesus Christ because they haven't embraced it remain under God's condemnation because of their sin. The good news is, is that it's really simple. To go from God's sitting under God's condemnation to receiving God's grace and favor. It simply means but looking at the cross saying, I am a sinner. I look to the cross where Jesus died on my behalf. I can't do it on my own and I embrace that as my own. And then God takes you. In that instant, he moves you from under his condemnation to under his favor. You are his child forever. And you have a relationship with him. And if you've never done that, I'm gonna to go to prayer right now. And I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do it. And if you are a follower of Jesus, the question that I wanna ask you to consider today and as we leave here is, do you live with, as if the favor of Christ rests on you because of him? And then do you live a life in that identity that boldly embraces and cares for others? Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, the gentle and lowly. Thank you, Jesus, that you came with grace and love and that our sin caused you to die for us so that you would experience the joy of seeing us reconciled to the living God. And as followers of Jesus, we are so grateful, Lord, that you live with us in grace and mercy and you love us and that we have your favor. Father, I pray for any who among us today who have never given their lives to Jesus Christ to, in truth, sit under the condemnation of the living God because of sin. And I pray, Lord God, that anyone here or online would in that situation, would just say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. Forgive me for my sin. I want to embrace the payment of Jesus on the cross for my sin, that I might live under the grace and mercy and favor of the living God. We thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen.